This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello everyone, you're listening to By the Book with me Sharmila Ganesan and as always, my fellow literary lover Lichwe Lin. Hello. And today we are um, highlighting what's, I think, become a, a sort of an annual event here for us on the show, certainly for book lovers in Malaysia. It's time for the Georgetown Literary Festival again. Uh, that's happening from the 25th to the 28th of November, largely happening virtually once more this year. So for that, we are joined by the festival director, Pauline Fan. Hello, Shamala. Hello, Lynn. Lovely to see you and hear you. So, Pauline, let's start with the year's theme. Um, I found it really interesting. It's, um, is it microcosmos? I think of it as microcosmos, but I think it's open to readers however they want to pronounce it. Microcosmos, microcosmos. Uh, we are completely, we're not going to be dictatorial about the way you pronounce. Now, where did that come from and why did you settle on that? So, uh, microcosmos, I was thinking that actually because of our prolonged lockdown and this pandemic year actually turned out to be even more intense than last year's lockdown. Um, I mean, even this year, even organizing the festival, the curatorial team wasn't even able to meet physically. I only met uh, my team in person for the first time last week, actually, just before the press conference. Um, everything was done online. And, and I think many of us were feeling this anxiety of separation, the anxiety of isolation, even more so than last year. Um, and in a way, not just Malaysia, of course, but the rest of the world, because of this this non-ability to travel um, and the lockdowns everywhere, actually, and also the really devastating death rates um, and illness that was happening everywhere. Um, in some ways, we did become more isolated and fragmented. But in other ways, I was thinking that that's something that still connects us. Literature is something that still connects us and is something that makes us feel part of a larger world um, through the reading and also through conversations. And I really wanted to highlight that so that even while our cosmos is perhaps shrinking into kind of micro, <laughs> micro cosmos. Um, at the same time, it's also that each book and each literature and each adventure within the literary sphere is a microcosmos on its own, you know, and, and that we can still have a world within, within the small world that we, that we occupy physically. Who is in the lineup then this year? You know, how did you think about curating the lineup to fit into that theme that you just talked about? Yes, there were some things that um, were at the very top of my list. The moment we started curating this theme, it was also this year also happens to be the 700th death anniversary of the great Dante. And so that was in my mind from the beginning. Um, and Dante himself, of course, is the poet of the, of the macrocosmic, in a way. I mean, his entire vision of, of the divine comedy, uh, which really intersects the universal with the individual, um, that was something that I thought would fit perfectly into this theme. And then I went about trying to look for the, for the best uh, people to actually be in that panel. And fortunately, we have someone who I've wanted to feature at the festival for a while, and I thought she'd be perfect for this session, is Mastura Alatas, because she is Malaysian. She's been living in Italy for many years, decades, actually, fluent in Italian, and knows also very well um, Italian literature, including Dante. Um, so I put her on that panel, and then we spoke to the Italian embassy, and they helped us also put us in touch with a, a Dante expert, uh, Professor Giuliana Nuvoli, who has been, her entire year, I think she's been giving lectures on Dante. She's really one of those people who's a, the, the go-to Dante experts. Um, so it was a real privilege to have her as well. 
I also then took the opportunity to bring in um, the writer Tim Parks, who is a British um, Italian writer. He's lived in Italy also for decades. He's one of the great, um, he's an essayist, a novelist, um, but he's also a great translator of Italian fiction. And so um, not Dante in particular, although he has written about Dante, but uh, he has translated Leopardi and uh, Machiavelli and Roberto Colasso and some of Italo Calvino and some of those great um, Italian writers. So we have Tim Parks as well in conversation with Edin Koo, who is actually a good friend of Tim's. So they have a very wonderful kind of uh, chemistry <laughs> online in their conversation. But also I was thinking the microcosmos is an opportunity for us to look at cosmopolitanism. And cosmopolitanism is something that is innate to this region, Southeast Asia. We have always been cosmopolitan in some way. Um, and also to Penang. Penang is a very cosmopolitan hub, trade-wise, culture-wise. But we, so we wanted to look and bring in some of those conversations of the region as well. One of the conversations that uh, is looking specifically at that kind of cosmopolitanism is a conversation between Faisal Tehrani and Azhar Ibrahim. This is one of our Malay conversations curated by Izzuddin Rami, our curator for BM Sessions. Um, and it's on the concept of Marantau, which is this kind of that very uh, Southeast Asian and very Malay Nusantara concept of wandering and traveling um, and exploring the region. So you mentioned um, Izudin, and he's, of course, curating the festival along with you. What has that process been like? And what was the experience of putting together these discussions in both English and Bahasa? So Izudin is a very wonderful person to work with. He has so many ideas. Um, and I'm really grateful that he's, for the last couple of years, has been working with me to curate the BM sessions. And because of that, because he is a dedicated curator for the BM sessions, we have an expanded BM program in the process. And, and all those conversations have been very wonderful. And I think he tends to emphasize both nonfiction and fiction, um, both create poetry. And so there's a real balance. Um, he writes a lot of essays as well. He's also a translator. So I think he actually has a very good balance of the kind of conversations he wants to, to bring in. And I think in the process, um, the Malay language community, particularly the younger writers, I think feel a lot more included. And I think they are starting to feel in the past few years that this is a festival that also belongs to them, which I think is a wonderful thing. I mean, as much as possible, I'd like every literary community in the country to feel that way. You're also presenting a collaborative project called Muara under GTLF this year. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Um, Muara, this was actually one of Izudin's ideas, and then we all got involved. Um, we wanted to uh, put together a publication because partly to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the GTLF, which passed last year. And of course, last year, it was the first kind of um, online virtual festival, so we didn't really have a chance to do that. And this year, we were thinking instead of just doing a conversation or something else virtual, let's mark it in some kind of physical form. And so we thought, let's do a publication because it's still physical, even though um, it's not quite physical in the same way. So we brought together our good friends and collaborators, the two editors from the journal uh, Spada, which is a Malay language journal. I think they've been in existence for two years now. But we all got together and we just started brainstorming and thinking about what we would like to do and, and what we could do um, budget-wise and also bring in some of our uh, partners like the Japan Foundation and the Birth Institute and the Canadian High Commission also supported that publication as well. Um, but basically we wanted to, um, to showcase some of the writers who have been involved in the GTLF, but we also commissioned newer writers um, or new writings from writers around the region. 
and some around the world. And we ended up with a kind of anthology of about, I think it's about 34, 35 pieces, about half in Malay and half in English. So, of course, one aspect of um, GTLF that's always been quite special is the link to Penang. And with the festival now happening online, were there questions that this connection of place um, might get diluted? Are there ways that you're hoping uh, hoping to emphasize this connection? Yes, actually. um, So now we do have a possibility of holding a few hybrid events on the weekend of the GTLF in Penang itself. But even before that became a possibility, we have curated several conversations which actually look at Penang. Uh, one of them is a conversation between Wikibeng and Sherard Putin, and that's looking at literacy and cosmopolitanism in an age of crisis, but specifically actually about Penang. Um, so that should be an interesting conversation. Another one that we are touching on Penang as well is a conversation on anthologies. So that's between Derek E and uh, Anna Tan. And Anna has put together an anthology of Penang writers. Um, Now we'll be able to actually do that conversation in in hybrid form. So that's one of our few hybrid events that will actually be happening on the GTLF weekend. But there's a few others that I think um, we do touch on Penang. Even in the journal, actually, in Wara, we have a few pieces that are specifically looking at Penang. We're talking about the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021 that's happening from the 25th to the 28th of November. The theme this year is Microcosmos and it's happening largely online through podcasts and videos. Let us know, are you a fan of the GTLF? Are you looking forward to it this year? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about the Georgetown Literary Festival this year. And for that, we are joined by uh, the festival's director, Pauline Fun. The festival is happening from the 25th to the 28th of November. It's going to be a series of podcasts and videos. And the theme for this year is Microcosmos. So, Pauline, I wanted to um, pick up on something that we've sort of been circling around, I think, during this conversation, which is the fact that this is the second time you're putting the whole thing together virtually. What has that been like? It's actually been quite frustrating, but also sometimes quite um, enjoyable as well. There are some things about the online um, recordings and conversations, I think, that are quite wonderful. Partly just the fact that it's it's quite easy to get people to to participate and you don't have to go through an entire big um, process of logistics and travel and all of that. But at the same time, the technical aspects are actually quite a nightmare. Um, some We actually had to, to shift our online platforms several times because the first ones that we, that we decided on didn't quite work out. So there's a lot of learning as you go along and there's a lot of experimentation. Sometimes you just have to make decisions. I mean, Malaysia, I actually discovered that Malaysia's internet um, connect- connectivity is not great. <laughs> so it's, I thought it was much better, but honestly, it's some, sometimes um, with our own Malaysian writers, it was a problem. And so fortunately, we had a couple of weekends ago, we had the opportunity to do a few sessions that we could actually bring, including uh, the one that Lynn hosted uh, with Tina Macaretti. Um, we managed to at least bring some of our moderators or, or some of the conversationalists into a studio to, to record. But, but most of it has actually been just via the online platforms. It's been quite frustrating, honestly. Um, we really do look forward to a time that we can gather again physically. But however, I think the online um, format 
there's there's some room to perhaps experiment with. And I think even as we do go back slowly to a physical festival, perhaps there are certain elements of the online that we can perhaps still keep. So um, I, I thought we could look also at last year's festival because I'm curious as to how it was received and what kind of feedback you got. I think the last year's festival was received very well. I think in t- terms of numbers, we had about more than 11,000 listeners. Uh, it was mostly podcasts. There was a few videos, but it was mostly podcasts. But it, from 21 different countries, I think it reached out quite a bit. Um, and so that's always nice to see. Um, I think what we did do right last year, which we're continuing this year, is that we emphasized pre-recorded conversations Because I think even from last year, there was already a kind of webinar fatigue setting in, this kind of constant, incessant online live conversations that were happening throughout the year. And somehow the podcasts of just concentrating on really good quality podcasts and conversations um, and substantial topics and substantial conversations really, I think, was something I think we did right and that we're trying to replicate this year. This year, however, we're also, partly because of the platform we're using, we're also releasing most of the conversations as video as well. So people will have a choice to, to either listen on Spotify as a podcast or to also watch the video on, on YouTube. What are some specific lessons that you've learned and, and implemented from last year? I think even things like just the timing of, of certain conversations, when it's an online conversation, we tend to we try not to go too long. Um, I think listeners usually get a bit weary after 45 minutes, so we try not to go to an hour, although I think there are some that actually do go up to an hour. Um, but for me, if it's engaging, I think we, we usually don't edit it. Um, things out much. We are quite flexible with time. Um, but we also try to mix up the formats. And so there are also some, there are some shorter ones, there are some longer ones, um, there are some which are um, a bit more lighthearted, there are some which are a bit more kind of grave and serious. Um, a few video conversations that are pu- will purely be on video. Um, so we're trying to, to mix up the formats as much as we can. Now, we spoke about this last year and you touched on it a little bit earlier as well, trying to replicate the feel of a festival when it's not in person, um, whether that's about, I don't know, the, the sense of fun or collective community that comes with it or just the sense of buzz around one particular weekend. How are you working that in this year? Well, what we do is we are still releasing all the sessions within a four-day time frame, And so as much of a buzz that we can create around those four days, we're trying to do that. This year, we have a little bit more uh, festival feel just because we do have a few hybrid events in Penang as well. So we will be able to do, hopefully, if things don't change, the situation doesn't change, um, we will be able to do a few things, also like a couple of book launches, a couple of conversations and things like that. Also an exhibition. We, have, we are working in collaboration with the Alliance Francaise of Penang. Um, and they, are, they have a kind of digital, half digital and half physical exhibition that they will be hosting at their premises, which then visitors to the GTLF will also be um, invited to go to, of course. Um, so as much as possible, we are trying to, to keep up that, that festival feel. Um, we also have something, yeah, this is actually an answer to the previous question, something I think which we are replicating again, which we thought worked really well last year, is the short story readings. So besides just conversations, we also have, um, this year we have two short story readings, one in English, one in Malay. And, and we have wonderful readers this year. We have Wan Hanafi Su, the actor, 
who has done a wonderful reading of an excerpt of a novel by S. Osmaklantan, one of our Sastrawanagara. And we have Adiba Noor reading a ghost story by Othman Wok in English. Which that's, those two are something I think everyone should look forward to as well. The podcast format is really good for that. It's really good for just listening to people um, storytelling. So on that note of actually the feel, one thing I um, have come to realise about the GTLF over the years is that it's really a community. There is such a thing as a GTLF community, people who enjoy being able to come to the event or to talk to each other about the event and what they saw. Do you see this happening um, perhaps on social media or in some other form now that you've done this online? There is definitely a community. I'm feeling it a lot actually with the Malay language writers. Um, I think they have a real community that is that is sustained and always in conversation. And they do feel that GTLF is now kind of embracing them. Um, and so I think they do look forward to GTLF. There's been quite a bit of discussion, even outside of the festival, about the kind of possibilities of, of owning this festival in a sense. You know, and that's I really love that. I love that also... This year, we're also in being more inclusive of Borneo writers. So we have a collaboration with Nusi Poetry that is showcasing, I think, about 13 to 15 Borneo poets and readers just reading excerpts um, and poems by not just Sabah Sarawak, but also Kalimantan and Brunei. So, yeah, I do feel there is a community and it's also growing. Even from the past two years, because we reached out to the Mahua community, which is the Malaysian Chinese uh, literary community, even till today, I think they still feel very much that they're a part of GTLF or the GTLF family. Um, and I'd, I'd really like to keep that going, that kind of sense of community. Pauline, I think, you know, you've mentioned a number of different sessions, podcasts, readings. Um, but are there any other highlights that you'd like to share before we conclude? Actually, there are so many. Um, I, think, I, mean, I, think, I think I'll just run through briefly some of the wonderful speakers and writers that we have on our, on our lineup this year. We have Eka Kuniawan, the Indonesian novelist um, and fiction writer who is in conversation with Wano Azrik. That's, I think, definitely one of the highlights of this year. Um, also the Japanese writer Mine Mizumura, who is an incredible, um, very distinguished writer from Japan, very fascinating, quite experimental novelist. So she, um, she's in conversation with me. In one of the sessions, Tina Macaretti from New Zealand, who is actually in conversation with Lynn, who I think is a wonderful writer that we have on our lineup this year. Subankam Tamavongsak um, from Canada, who's in conversation with Shamala um, in a wonderful, wonderful conversation as well. I think there are so many writers this year who really, I don't think there's any single session that I think is less less um, than the other. I think all of them are stars and all of them are, are fascinating in their own way. I really hope that people will take the time to, to listen to each and every one of these podcasts um, and, and videos. And we put a lot of ourselves into it. And I think the writers did as well. Um, they really took these conversations seriously and, and very, were very open about the kind of things they spoke about online. We have also, I think there's something of a kind of a mini theme on looking at things like short stories this year. So perhaps because of the microcosmos theme as well, we ended up also curating uh, a few sessions on, on short stories. So there's a, a really good session on Chirpen in Malay. There's also, we're featuring two short story writers, Paul Nana Selvan and also Daniel Lim, who recently won the Singapore Book Prize. They are in conversation with uh, Vernon Adrian M. Wang. That should also be a very interesting session. So yes, there's, there is a lot to, to delve into actually. And I really hope people will become part of the experience and become part of our GTLF community. 
So just in closing then, do you see the festival taking on perhaps a different form as we move forward, maybe incorporating some of the changes from these two editions? What I would like to see continue, perhaps some elements of the online can be retained. I really like podcasts, um, of course, and perhaps perhaps we could retain some things that are just done especially as podcasts and not necessarily as a, as a physical session. That That's something I'm definitely open to. One thing I would love to see continue is actually the publication. I think it's so rare for a literary festival to actually put out a publication. It doesn't happen a lot, really. And and this is something like a, it's like a literary journal. And, and because we are harnessing um, the talent and expertise of, of real editors in, who are involved in this journal, I think it's something that I would like to see continue and become a tradition at Shakira. Pauline, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Shamalini. We've been speaking with Pauline Fan, who is the festival director for this year's Georgetown Literary Festival. Uh, that's themed Microcosmos, happening from the 25th to the 28th of November. Um, a whole series of podcasts and videos, some live events happening as well. So for more information, you can check out their website. That's georgetownlitfest.com. And let us know, are you a fan of the GTLF? Do you miss attending literary festivals? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. us to footnotes and uh, we thought that we haven't done this in a while so um, we'd revisit some of our favourite articles um, and long reads which is something we've been doing off and on on the show. I think it's a way of just celebrating this form of writing that doesn't get as much shine as it should. So we have some recommendations, some long reads that have caught our attention recently. Lynn, do you want to start us off? Okay, I'm going to talk about something that isn't current, um, but we're not on the evening edition per se. I don't have to <laughs> deal so much in current affairs. And that is an article on The Atlantic, and it was published in the September issue this year. And it focused, as it would from an American publication in September, on 9-11, because of course this year was the 20th anniversary. And what I liked about it, it's called What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind. And if you haven't read it yet, I say put aside an hour, um, not because it takes that long to read, but because it takes perhaps that long to read and process. It looks at the life of one man who passed away in one of the towers and the ways in which the grief he left behind affected his family very, very differently. So you had a father who really became one of the shining lights of the 9-11 conspiracy theories um, around whether or not, you know, it was the planes that brought the towers down, you know, who whose way of coping was to go with that. You have a mom who went a completely different way, but has to support her husband through this. Um, the woman who would have been his fiance, he was planning to propose to her the next week, I think. And it's written by Jennifer Senior, who's a family friend. And so the perspective of writing about someone that she loved 
through the lens of all the people who loved him. It's just a really deeply moving read. And I mean, yes, it's about 9-11, but it's also so much to do with grief and family connections. That's an article that I've actually bookmarked uh, to read. Of course, it's it's been a few months. I haven't gotten around to it yet. But I, I love it when, and I think long reads or, or long articles, long form articles allow for this to happen in a way that journalism sometimes can't. That whole ability to bring a personal lens to it is something that drew me to that article. And just the fact that I think the more removed we get from the events of 9-11, the more they start feeling like something that is a historical event and not necessarily about humans. And this article really sounds like it, it takes it back to that, the fact that this affected real lives. That and I think it also, to a degree, de-Americanizes it because as time has gone on there, it is, of course, America's tragedy. And so the way it's written about and thought about is also quite heavily politicized, quite heavily American. You know, it's just a product of what it is. But this is just a deeply human story that I think anybody reading would be able to relate to. It's also beautifully written. So again, uh, it's by Jennifer Senior. It's called What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind. It's on The Atlantic. So since you started with The Atlantic, I'll get the other big long read platform out of the way. My recommendation is from The New Yorker, and it's about something extremely current. It's about COVID-19 more specifically. It's called The Mysterious Case of the COVID-19 Lab Leak Theory. Uh, it's by Carolyn Corman. And essentially, it takes something that, or rather it takes information and events and, and a sort of chain of events that we are all pretty familiar with, but really deep dives into the details. Um, it's science journalism in one of my favorite forms, in the sense that it takes things that might be quite difficult for the layperson to understand, uh, hones in on just the different factors that go into it, um, you know, examines politics, examines culture, examines international relations, and how all of this feeds into the challenges that we've had in terms of trying to uncover where this virus came from in the first place. I feel like it's a really essential read, particularly at this point in time, because it helps you understand not just where the virus might have come from. The article doesn't really give you answers, but I think more significantly allows you to understand how difficult it is to actually uncover or unearth information like this amidst today's swirl of fake news and essentially the loggerheads that most countries are at, the difficulty in crossing borders and cross-border collaborations. It sounds like it would be boring, but it's it actually reads like, like a spy thriller. It reads like World War Z. And I know, that, <laughs> I know that saying that draws comparisons that are probably unwanted. But it's got that same vibe of looking at something that was in some ways catastrophic through a deeply scientific lens yeah. and understanding how scientists would have had to work to get there. Um, the other thing is, I, I think as people who talk about COVID-19 an awful lot on the radio and who therefore struggle to balance, um, I think being able to speak very frankly about concerns and worries and ideas that people might have about it without veering full on into fake news, into, into falsehoods. The article does a brilliant job of balancing that. So that's the mysterious case of the COVID-19 lab leak theory. Uh, that's on The New Yorker. It's by Carolyn Corman. Uh, Lynn, what's your next recommendation? So 
Uh, I'm pretty excited to recommend this one, partly because, as Pauline said, uh, I was in conversation with Tina Macaretti, who is a, a New Zealand writer of Maori descent. And in preparing for the interview, I read a number of her writings, and it included this one, which is on the pantograph punch, and it's called, By Your Place in the World, I Will Know Who You Are. And it is this really wonderful personal essay that has a um, a poetic slant to it. But really, it looks at this idea of how in Maori culture, where you come from tells you everything about your ancestral ties and therefore who you are, you know. And you're not just talking about being linked to the people of the place, but being linked to the rocks, the lakes, the mountains, you know, the, the literal geography of a place. And as somebody who didn't feel like she grew up having that. The essay is written from that point of view. I mean, Tina writes as somebody who is um, half Maori, half Pakeha descent, and therefore looks at it through that lens. And it's just a wonderful thing. I've always been fascinated by this idea of place. Um, I think especially as a Malaysian who isn't of Bumiputra descent, this relationship to where I am from, how it has made me who I am, how much ownership I have over the place I was born into. It's very different culturally, but spiritually, emotionally, um, there's a very strong relationship to what she's writing about. You've talked so much about this um, this writer and her works that I'm so excited to uh, look up some of them. I, I generally love the kinds of approaches that Maori writers have taken. I think it's so important to have Indigenous writing or stories that feature Indigenous narratives and Maori literature in particular has been, I think, able to do it with the kind of support that a lot of other communities around the world lack. That title again, please. That title is By Your Place in the World, I Will Know Who You Are. And it's by Tina Macaretti. It is published on The Pantograph Punch. So now I'm going to veer completely into something else. And I think that's sort of indicative of just the breadth and, and, and diversity of long read articles that are available. I have one mini recommendation and uh, one one sort of proper one. If you haven't read it already, uh, for something a little bit more local, New Narrative um, just put out an article called Her Name is Untak. And that's actually a, um, a long-form article about um, Cambodia and how there are these whole groups of children that were fathered in Cambodia by the United Nations peacekeepers that were brought to the country and how now they are fatherless and, and a lot of them are um, discriminated against, they face poverty, um, often ostracized by their own family because of the fact that people don't respect their heritage in some sense. So a great piece and I think um, a piece that we know uh, a piece that platforms an issue that we know very, very little about. Uh, so that's our new narrative. It's by Marta Castellan. Uh, her name is Untak. And my final recommendation is an article that I think I, I didn't expect to get this invested in. It's on Aeon.co and uh, it's called The Post-Human Dog. So Post-Human Dog, it's written by Jessica Pierce. It's actually an excerpt from a larger book that she's put out called A Dog's World. And the premise of it is really... What would dogs become or how would they evolve if humans stopped existing? And it's a simple premise, but it actually opens up so much in terms of uh, evolution and biology. And, and ultimately, I think the aim of the article is to get you to realize how you could be treating your dogs better or animals in general that rely on us better because the aim or, or the central thrust of the article seems to be that 
here's all the ways in which their lives might be better if humans um, perhaps didn't exist or never existed. I mean, that sounds amazing. As someone who is uh, heavily invested in my dog's inner life, that that just sounds um, (laughs) like something that I would love to read. So just a whole bunch of recommendations. If you're looking for articles rather than books to dive into, do send yours our way as well. Um, What are some long form articles or long reads that you've enjoyed? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.